Good morning. I'm Adam. I am a director of 5th through 12th grade ministry here at Lakeland. And I would like to start this morning by getting caught up on where we've been and where we are. So the first two weeks of this season of Lent, we began a series to take us through a narrative, a story of Lent. We followed the Israelites in the desert as they were freed from their slavery in Egypt and began making their way through the wilderness toward the promised land of Canaan. In week one, we were tested in the desert. But we passed. We came through with flying colors through Christ's own victory. In week two, we faced our idols in the desert, and we realized that they are nothing compared to the glory and power of God. Now, the past two weeks, we paused briefly from the story of Lent as Pastor Dan helped us go through some important practices of Lent. But this morning, we return to our story in the wilderness. Now, it feels to me like everybody these days is doing prequels, right? In movies, television, everything. And this morning, we are absolutely going to jump on that bandwagon. Because our story for today is a prequel to everything else that we've talked about in this series, in weeks one and two. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes prequels, they can be a little disappointing. But not this one. This one is going to live up to the hype. Why? Because what we just read is a monumental passage of Scripture. It would be really difficult to overestimate just how important this passage is to our understanding of God's redemptive plan and God's redemptive story in Scripture. It is so often quoted and referenced in both the Old and the New Testaments. Why? Because this part of God's story has been celebrated and understood by the Hebrew people for thousands and thousands of years to be the embodiment and the proof of God's salvation of his people. Now let's stop right here for a moment and consider this word salvation. Now this can be a difficult word for many people to, to grasp and, and connect with. Maybe because we've all heard it about a million times. If you've spent any amount of time in church, I'm sure you have encountered this word. And anytime we hear something over and over, it can tend to to lose a little bit of its power and meaning for us. But the real reason that this, this concept of salvation just doesn't hit us with any kind of force is because we don't believe we've experienced it. For many of us, the concept 
It just doesn't resonate in our memories or in our very beings. We do not have an experiential connection to what happened to and for the people of Israel in the passage we just read. We may intellectually assent to the idea of salvation, but we do not understand salvation. We do not feel salvation in a physical, tangible way. We do not cherish salvation. What would that look like to cherish salvation? In May of 2013, a giant storm hit the Gulf of Guinea off the coast of Nigeria. And a tugboat was sent out to help stabilize an oil tanker in the the choppy waters and the rough seas. But unfortunately, the waters were too choppy and the seas were too rough. The tugboat capsized and sank to the bottom of the ocean with all 12 crew members going down with it. Three days after this horrible accident, divers were sent down to the boat to investigate the scene and recover the bodies. And as the divers made their way through the very last of the rooms, suddenly a hand reached out and grabbed one of their arms. No, this is not the plot to a horror movie. Because actually, the ship's cook had somehow survived. (laughs) In total darkness, he had located an air bubble, felt his way into the engineer's room, and waited for someone to rescue him. For 60 hours, he waited, keeping his head above the waters, waters that were reaching near freezing temperatures at night hoping, praying that someone would find him down there alone on the bottom of the ocean for three days in pitch black darkness waiting to die. But the death he expected did not come. What came instead was something that he had probably given up complete and total hope of ever receiving. Salvation. Can you even imagine what a gift those divers were to that man in that moment? I can honestly barely even fathom it. And yet... Scripture tells me that I have experienced it through the salvation of God. My prayer for all of us this morning as we embark on this journey with the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 14 is that God's rescue and salvation would become something that matters in our everyday lives. I pray that we would allow our hearts to be captured, 
to be taken up into, to be completely overwhelmed by the reality of our salvation by God. Now, as we consider our passage for this morning, I'm actually not sure that salvation is the primary thing on the hearts and minds of the people here. Rather, if I had to pick one word that best seems to define Israel's experience in Exodus 14, I'm going to have to go with fear. Complete, unadulterated terror. Here they are, finally escaping from hundreds of years of pure hell, oppression, and slavery in Egypt. And now, as they begin a long, difficult journey to the promised land and finally reaching the place that they have only been able to dream about their entire lives, they look back and see a huge Egyptian army tearing out after them, ready to attack. The Israelites see this, are afraid, and say, Oh, no. We have made a huge mistake. This is the worst possible outcome. We're being led into the desert to die. We wish we had never come out here in the first place. We wish we had never left our old lives. We long for what we had in Egypt. Let's not skip over this part too quickly. We long for what we had in Egypt. What a profound illustration of the nature of sin and specifically fear. Fear causes us to behave in irrational ways and not just irrational ways, but ways that are harmful and false. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God must be holding out on us. If If we truly want to be free, we've got to reach out and grab it for ourselves. And here, the Israelites say, God must have been tricking us this entire time, leading us out into the desert to be slaughtered. Let's just go back to being slaves in Egypt. We'd rather do that again. Think about what they're saying. We'd rather go back to where our backs were breaking in labor to where the hot sun scorched us, to where our own children were being taken away and even killed by our masters. That is what the Israelites beg to go back to. Why? What could possibly drive them to such thoughts and feelings? It's the people's Fear that is causing this outrageous mindset. Now understand that sometimes our fear is not completely misplaced. Did the Israelites have a good reason to be afraid here? Sure. More than 600 chariots bearing down on you. Over 600 of the most terrible, destructive, killing machines known to man at the time coming right for you not to mention all of the other soldiers armed to a T. I would have been afraid too. But the problem is, letting our fear take control will never result 
in an accurate or helpful view of our circumstances. Fear causes us to be swept back up into our past failures. Fear causes us to overestimate our present difficulties. Fear causes us to abandon what we absolutely knew to be true even 10 minutes prior. Fear causes us to believe things that are false and to return to the very things that harm us over and over again to the point that we actually desire them. To the point that we return to what destroys us over and over. Perhaps our first major takeaway from the text this morning is that God can and does get his people out of Egypt. But it can often be very difficult for God to get Egypt out of his people. The Israelites were escaping from their slavery in Egypt, but the reality of Egypt had not yet escaped from their hearts. We desire to be freed from these things that enslave us, that hold us captive, that control us. But there is something about our fallenness and our frailty that leads us back to those things time and time again, as though we are chained to it, in bondage to these desires that lead us astray. There's another intriguing aspect to the story here in Exodus 14, where God has placed his people. Now, growing up as the son of a police officer, I learned something at a very early age about the correct way to pick your seat in a restaurant. Every single time that we would go to a restaurant and sit down, we had to sit, always, every time, where my dad could have his back to a wall and his eyes on the door. He wanted to see everything that was happening and could possibly happen as it happened right before him. He wanted to be able to see all the entrances and all the exits just in case. And it was that experience growing up that caused me to do an absolute double take when I read this chapter. Do you see where God places the people of Israel here? in a terrible, vulnerable spot. You would never put your back to an ocean or to a desert that leads to the most destructive and dangerous army in the world. And yet that is exactly where God tells the people to camp for the night. Stay right here, he says, with an immovable sea behind you and an undefeatable army in front of you. The people have no way out. In this position. So when the Egyptian army appears with bad intentions, it is again not extremely difficult to have empathy for the fear and panic that the Israelites experience. But as the fear wells up inside the people of God, God speaks. And God says to his people, Do not fear. Remember 
who I am. Remember what I've already done on your behalf. Remember that I love you. And God is not only a God who speaks, but a God who acts. And God fully intends to act on behalf of the people of Israel here. And now we begin to see why God may have put them in such a precarious position in the first place. Now, now, stuck between this irresistible force and this immovable object with the entire deck stacked completely against them, the only hope the people have to be saved here is God. That's it. God is options A, B, and C. Either God will rescue these people or they will perish. Many years ago, when I was in law school, I had a class that uh, I hadn't put as much time and effort into as I had other classes. And come finals time, uh, the one test that would determine my entire grade for the entire course I began to realize that that might become a problem for me. So I took my notes packet out, a notes packet that was about, oh, I don't know, this thick, that I basically had to have completely memorized word for word, and it really hit me. I had a sickening realization. I did not have enough time to get through enough of this material to pass this test. I just didn't. There was no way. So what did that mean? Well, that meant that I would have to take this class the next, th- that coming summer, which would then push the bar exam for me from the summer to the fall, which would then destroy all of my plans to take a gap year by helping friends start a ministry in Arizona. And as I realized all of this in that moment, I freaked all the way out. I mean, I literally had a panic attack. I was so upset. I didn't want to study. I didn't want to take the test the next day. But I realized I had to. I had to do the best I could and just take what was coming to me. So I set out. um, I started actually spending a considerable amount of time praying for a miracle. (laughs) And then I just began going through my notes, studying what I could. I, I... go through a page here, a section here, just randomly skipping through the entire section, trying to get as full of a range as I could of the material. But I'm telling you, I maybe made it through 25% of that packet that night. So I showed up for the test the next morning, knowing I had no chance of passing this test. Deflated and despondent. And then something crazy happened. I got the test. I began to turn the pages and look through the questions, and I realized every question on the test was from the 25% of the notes that I had randomly studied. Every single one. I mean, what are the chances that that could possibly be the case It has to be pretty dang close to zero. (laughs) So I passed the test. 
And I had a brand new way to boast in God. You know, when you watch a football game and they interview at the end, like the player of the game, and that player always says, you know, all of this is, is because of God. I never really believed them. I, I, I really believe that God is actually the one who gave them their abilities, of course. But I don't really believe that they believe it. It's like, it just sounds like a, a cool, humble thing to say, right? But in this moment, I knew with 100% certainty that God had passed this test. And I told anybody and everybody who would listen about it. I had put myself in an impossible spot, but God saved my behind. And that is exactly what is happening here in this story. Only obviously the stakes are much, much higher. The Israelites fear that perhaps God has abandoned them But he hasn't. And the places where God seems most absent, where the scene appears to be completely hopeless, is where God's deliverance can finally be seen for what it really is. Absolutely essential. This is why the desert, the wilderness, is so incredibly important. It's not just the season in between our spiritual peaks and joyful moments. It's not just biding our time till we can get back up on our feet and and, and feel a little less fearful and a little less worried. And it's definitely not a time to believe that God has abandoned us or doesn't care about us anymore. The wilderness is the place where God needs us to see how much we need him. It's the place where God needs us to see how much we need him. It's the place where God comes into an impossible situation where there is no hope for our own ability to get ourselves out of it. And God says, you stand back and watch me do it. Watch me work for you. Watch me display my power and my loving care and my faithfulness to you. Watch me rescue you. Watch me defeat your enemies. Look at this incredible statement that God makes in verses 13 and 14 of the passage we read this morning. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. In Exodus 14, God helps the Israelites with a momentary problem. Pharaoh and his chariots and his army are a momentary problem. Your boss at work, who you're pretty sure hates you, is a momentary problem. 
Your friends at school who have turned their backs on you and turned against you are a momentary problem. Your kids who are struggling with their behavior at home are a momentary problem. And these momentary problems aren't meaningless just because they're momentary. They matter. And we should absolutely go to God with them. God desires us to seek him with our momentary problems. But the the more permanent, the more um, constant enemies in our lives for every single one of us are sin and death. These are the big ones. These are the ones that always loom, that always attempt to take away your hope and your joy, that attempt to destroy your very purpose for living. In Exodus 14, the cloud, which was God, moved in between the people and their momentary problem, the Egyptian army that was barreling toward them. Oftentimes, God comes And gives us relief from our momentary problems. But these moments are always pointing us to a bigger, more important rescue. From these bigger, more sinister enemies, sin and death. That is what Jesus comes and stands between for us. That is what Jesus takes on himself on the cross. A long, long time ago, I read a book. I think I was probably in middle school. This book was called The K. And in this story, there's an old man and there's a boy who are stranded on an island, not knowing if or when they will ever be rescued. And one day, a hurricane hits their little island. Now, I have never personally been in a hurricane, but I know people who have, and they say that the force of the winds are absolutely unfathomable. These are such incredibly strong, destructive forces, and the old man knows that there is no way that this boy can possibly survive the force of these winds. So he goes And stands between the boy and the hurricane. He covers him. He shields the boy with his own body, taking all of the force of the hurricane winds on himself and eventually giving his own life in the process. What an act of self sacrificial love. And this is the kind of love that Jesus has for us because he has done this for all of us. He has shielded us from the power of sin. He has blocked us from the consequence of death. And our reality is we are saved when and only when God comes between us and what seeks to destroy us. Not when we become a more spiritual person. Not when we become a more moral person, or kind person, or devoted person, or religious person. 
These things are great. They're, they're absolutely fine as a goal, but they can't save us. They won't save us. Only God can save us. And yet, with all of that being said, can you imagine how our recognition and our understanding of how we have been saved can and should change us? Can you imagine a world where sin and death no longer have any power over us, where we do not fear them, where we do not pay them any respect? Can you imagine that Nigerian cook trapped all alone on the bottom of the ocean and how he must have felt when he made it back to shore? I think I can, but barely. I have a faint glimmer of an idea, but one that grows stronger and clearer to me all the time. I believe I would live every single day with more purpose, more intentionality. I believe my entire reality would be transformed. Who and what I lived for, how I treated people, what I could more consistently find joy in. I believe not a day would pass when I wouldn't want to find my rescuers and thank them and spend time with them, reliving this incredible moment when I thought for sure I was dead but was made alive. I believe I would put reminders up everywhere around me of what had been done for me so that I could not possibly forget so that I wouldn't go back to my old, fearful, hopeless ways of living. I believe I would want others to feel the same way I did. Saved. Rescued. Given new life. The Lord will fight for you. You just need to be silent. The wilderness is a place of noticing, we've said. And our posture in the desert is to watch what God is doing in our lives so that we might recognize that God is the one who is doing it. We might carve out the time and space to be thankful and devoted to the one who has saved us. Let us delight in Jesus. Let us Rest in Jesus. Let us run to Jesus this morning. Now, we're not yet to Easter Sunday, but we're getting close enough that we can begin to picture and anticipate the salvation we celebrate. I pray that this year it would feel like getting rescued from a sunken tugboat on the bottom of the ocean I pray that this year we will all feel saved in every possible way. I pray that this year the death and resurrection of Jesus 
would mean as much or more to us than it ever has before. Now, there is a caution for us this morning as well. Because if you remember, our story for today was a prequel. That means everything else that we've come in contact with throughout the entirety of this series Failed tests, idolatry, complaining, quarreling, threats, despair, aimless wandering in the desert. All of those things happened after what we read today. All of those things happened after this amazing, incredible, earth-shattering act of salvation by God. So what can we do to avoid falling into the same traps? Simply saying that the Israelites are obviously flawed people and we somehow are not, is not going to get it done. But what will? We fight. We battle. We stand firm. Not for our own righteousness. Not for our own standing or for our own sake. But we fight the distractions and the apathy and the anger that attempt to separate us from the one who desires to love us and renew us. We fight to believe that God has saved us. And we fight to remember just how that can change everything about our lives. This is the point of what Pastor Dan has been helping us to do and to see over these last two weeks. Why create a rule of life? Why establish a rhythm of prayer? They are our weapons in this fight. They help us stay close to the only one who can truly save us. They help us to see our rescuer, Jesus Christ, and to desire what he is offering us a new life, a new view of the world, one of hope and peace, love and mercy, forgiveness and eternal life. Let's pray. God, this morning, I am overwhelmed by what your word tells us about your love for us, your protection for us, the links that you would go to to rescue us and save us. And I pray this morning for all of us here that this would mean something to us again, that we would recognize it, we would see it, And it would change our hearts. It would change who and what we are. It would create for us a new identity that is based in your love for us. We thank you immeasurably for the gift of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we approach Easter, that we would would turn in complete thankfulness for this incredible gift that we can never repay. And we 
We pray everything this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.